Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We have a phenomenal episode for all of you listeners today as I am joined by returning champion editorial producer for Tennis.com and my dear friend David Kane to help preview the 2022 WTA Tour Finals. It promises to be a fantastic week of action in Fort Worth. And on today's show, DK and I covered the event from just about every angle. We cover our most pressing questions entering the tournament, talking about things like who is the biggest threat to the run of Iga Svantec? Who's had the better season, player X or player Y? How many of these players will end next year in the top 10 as well? We debate those things and so much more. We offer our predictions, of course, as well. Simply put, it's a phenomenal episode. I am 1,000% confident all of you listening listeners will enjoy it. Of course, we appreciate all of you listeners who do continue to tune in day in, day out for what it's worth. If you don't already know, we've got a daily podcast called the Mini Break Feed, where we break down each and every day in the pro tennis world. If you're looking for updates on this week's action in Vienna and Basel on the men's side, that's the show for you, of course, next week. We've also got college tennis coverage coming for all of you listeners. Coverage of the 2022 Fall National Championships going to be available from First ball, the last on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Be sure to check it out so you don't miss out on any of the action. With all of that said, let's get to it. Fantastic podcast previewing the 2022 WTA Tour Finals with the one and only David Kane. Joining us on the podcast to help us preview the 2022 WTA Tour Finals is a returning champion here on our Crack Racket show and a man we haven't had on our podcasts in far too long. Of course, you know him best as the leading tweeter of all things Real Housewives gifts. You may also know his work as a senior editorial producer for Tennis.com. Of course, we know him as our dear friend. David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Well, like Ika Sviantek, I had a little bit of a lull in the fall, but I'm back and better than ever. <laughs> the season's almost over and I couldn't be happier. Thank you for yeah, having me. No, always a pleasure to have you. I will say we had our first, actually not our first in-person encounter with one another. I always harpen back to the 2019 Cincinnati press room, a moment I remember far fonder than you, where who was sitting to my right as we were waiting for Venus Williams, Novak Djokovic, just a plethora of people to come in. I knew it was David Kane. He didn't know who I was at the time, but this time we got to hug, so it felt real. I'm sure I just radiated friendly energy in Cincinnati, <laughs> but I tried to replicate for you in LA. So I hope I hope I hope it was worth the wait. Well, I think the fun part was, and this is a little look behind the curtain for all of you listeners, no Patreon subscription necessary. We were in the kitchen area of the Tennis Channel Santa Monica location, and, you know, it's a good hangout spot, right? Coffee machines, you got the fridge, the questions of the day, etc. I got to see the dry erase board in person. Yeah, I got to see the question of the day. A look behind the tweet. Uh, you got to see where they were and that I wasn't faking them. Um, but it was funny because the whole Tennis.com staff was there. And 
And it's not that I didn't know who some of the other faces were, because I literally just wanted to be like, I know you, I know you, I know you. We haven't met, but I've seen your name. Um, it's nice to put the face there, but I was like, ah, I got to talk to Dave. And it was just like 30 minutes uninterrupted. It was what we needed. It's how I feel every time I would meet a WT umpire for the first time. I'd have to resist the urge to be like, I love your work. <laughs> I almost took a photo of you and Gil meeting. I was like, I need to take this and save it for uh, save the date. Oh, well, Gil and I are old friends. I've seen him walking around with his uh, <laughs> with his go-go gadget camera camera equipment around the U.S. Open. I haven't had I didn't have the same pleasure with you. With the US I Open. forgot that you guys had that shared New York experience. That's a fair point. But of course, obviously, you were at Tennis.com to cook up all fun things, not only for the season home stretch, but for moving towards 2023. And while I won't ask you to reveal all of the secrets, I know it's some exciting times at Tennis.com. Tell, tell us what's up. Well, definitely for anyone who could do math, we're, we, you can you already know that we're heading into the 20th anniversary of Tennis Channel. I was just a wee nine or 10 year old when they first announced uh, the, the arrival of a TV channel dedicated purely to tennis, which was very exciting to me at the time. I remember reading the article in Tennis Magazine. So it's quite a full circle moment. And it's also we're also approaching the 50th anniversary of the WTA. So there's going to be a lot to celebrate in 2023, maybe, arguably more than the fact that I'm celebrating the end of this upcoming 2022 season. <laughs> no, I, I'm excited to hear it. I'm trying to think, what was I doing 20 years ago? Well, I was seven. Um, I had yet to skip a grade. Fun fact. We'll just go through the biography here. Yet to skip a grade. Oh, yeah. That's skipped a humble brag. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to say was it was simpler times where I was supposed to. And at the time, you're in kindergarten. I don't make the nomenclature. I believe it was referred to as a play date in the moment with someone in kindergarten. I was supposed to go to Nick Corbell's house. I only remember Jack Corbell. He had a brother named Nick eventually, older grade I became friends with. But Jack Corbell's house, I was supposed to go there. This was April 25th, 2002. So the year I turned seven, and I suppose right around this 20th anniversary when the announcement would have been made. And instead at 140, someone was like, oh, someone's here to pick you up. You got to go. And I was like, what do you mean I have to go? And they were like, oh, your mom's in labor. You're going to have a younger brother. And I was like, I don't care. I was like, I was like, I'm not missing this out. I was like, I'm supposed to go to his house. Um, so I'm not salty about it all these years later, but 20 year anniversary, that's probably what I was doing is licking my wounds from that affair. I mean, that Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire were not going to play themselves in 2002. <laughs> Counterpoint by going to the hospital, sitting in that waiting room, waiting for, you know, labor to occur. Um, that is what a miracle I was of doing. life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I remember. Jay Fisher, my mom's former partner, walks in and says, your mother, congratulations, had another boy. You're three. You have a squad now. We've got a three on three lineup. Um, so shout out to Nicholas Gruskin and the Gruskin family. But 20 years, excited to celebrate it with Tennis.com. And I guess this is a little tease for our listeners. You are headed down to Fort Worth, right? You are going to be on the grounds for the WTA Tour Finals. I am. I'll be there from first ball to last. I'm flying out on Thursday. I will be heading back on election day, hopefully in time to cast my vote after the uh, the the denouement of the WTA season. But yeah, I'll be there the whole time and I cannot wait. <laughs> denouement. It's good to have you back. This is why returning champion here on our shows. All right. With that said, you heading down to Fort Worth, it made you the perfect guest to help us preview the WTA Tour Finals. And what has been... I want to say the least strange of the three pandemic-related seasons, and just to set the framework for our listeners, um, I 
and they've heard this before, I guess, really to set the framework for you, David, since I know you're not a listener. Um, I like to refer to this COVID era, you know, uh, this two and a half year run. I do think it's been one sprint really since August 2020. We haven't had a chance to breathe. Yeah, last season's offseason was kind of normal, but this is the first one where it really feels like, all right, we know what the schedule looks like. Things are relatively back to a similar course. We kind of know who will, won't be playing what events. That's obviously a little more pertinent on the men's side than it is on the women's, but I don't know. I know we had Ashley Barty retire after an undefeated first month. That was certainly a monkey wrench thrown into the season. But the exercise we're doing today, uh, answering the most interesting questions heading into the tour finals. I have six on my list. And then thank you to all of our listeners who submitted, so, submitted excuse me, that's how you say that in English. So many excellent questions for David and I to ponder here today. My first question to you when I talk about this season being relatively normal compared to the rest, do we have the right field? Do we have the right eight players competing at this World Tour Finals? Like, I know it feels like Ashley Barty probably still deserves to be in the mix, even off of her one month. That said, you look at the final field, and just to go over it for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, the final eight players and the eight competing in Fort Worth, Iga, Owns, Pagula, Goff, Sakari, Garcia, Savalenka, Kasakina. Is that the right eight, DK? I mean, first of all, I have to bump immediately on the idea that this was the first normal season. I mean, I think talking about this COVID era, I mean, there was a sort of cohesiveness, I think, to the even through 2020 into 20, early 2022 with Naomi Osaka, Ash Barty sort of you know sharing in large part the uh, the Grand Slam title hall. It really did feel like we were in the midst of something of a in-between phase at Indian Wells, Miami, when we didn't know it was going to become a Barty, the aftermath of her retirement, and then, you know, Ika Shvantek slots right in and really takes over the tour in a way that was in arguably far more dominant than what Ash was able to do. It did feel like there was more movement beneath the Aussie, even if people were having trouble keeping up with her. There was still a bit of a steadiness between, I would say, probably 2 to 15. And so... A little bit less of that, I would say, coming into this WTA Finals. I think this is probably as correct of a top eight as we could have gotten. It did feel like we were getting a bit squirrely towards the middle of Guadalajara, where we going to get Veronica Kudermetova as a WTA Finals finalist, which felt, you know, in light of as good as her year has been, it didn't. That felt like it was going to be a genuine shock. Though she she did make her top ten debut, and congrats to her for that. I mean, you think of Elena Rybakina, Wimbledon champion. Could she have been in this mix? Were points awarded at Wimbledon? She certainly would have been. Were the WTA playing by ATP rules and and awarding you know spots into the WTA finals for Grand Slam champions? She would also be there. But at the same time, was Rybakina's year so extraordinary that the thought of her being here is going to make a big dent? Not necessarily. She had a wonderful Wimbledon, but there's not much. Before or after that, you can really say this was someone who was building towards a top eight finish and sure enough does not finish within the top eight. So I think when you look at the names and the turnover from 2021 to 2022, you have three returning names and Ika Svantec, Maria Sakari, and Arena Sabalenka. Definitely more consistency than 2019 to 2021, but it still feels like we're in the midst of this sort of long-term transition. I like to argue with you sometimes just to argue. I'm going to concede the point on this one. If I could go back and retake that intro, if it was a solo mini break, I would have hit stop. I would have hit delete. I would have been like, let's try that again. I'm um, really seeing how the sausage is made now. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. West Stuff once asked me, how many times do you think you say welcome to the mini break a week? And I was like, north of 40, um, which isn't great. Um, that said, I think you make a fair point, uh, especially with the vacuum opened at the top following Barty's retirement. Now, Iga filled that vacuum pretty quickly, and the stability she brought particularly to the French Open, she drops just one set. Even in a U.S. Open where she wasn't playing her best, she still beats out the rest of the field. You have Jabir making back-to-back slam finals as well. There was, you know, Coco Goff, top five in the world, singles, doubles, obviously has had an incredible season, a slam final There was some consistency week in, week out at most of the big events. Obviously, Jessica Pagula, you can pencil her into the quarterfinals of just about every big event we played this season. I think she had eight quarterfinals or further at the Masters 1000 or Slam level here this year. But you know I love numbers, DK. You knew I was going to have stats for you here on today's show. How could I not? For what it's worth, you look at... All the WTA Tour finalists we have here this year, they're all tied for eighth or better in terms of total quarterfinals on this 2022 season. All of them made at least eight quarterfinals overall on the year. Now, it's interesting. You had only three players in double digits this season. Sviantek, Jabir, each made 12. Not a coincidence. They're one and two in the world. Kuder Matova made 11. She's the only player in double digits who... Uh, only other player in double digits, and obviously she's one spot short of the two or finals. But, you know, the only player who I think you could really justify as missing from this field, uh, because I kind of wanted to, you know, I wanted to do a snub section. It's like, who should be in this field? And while I could make a case that Ludmilla Samsonova is playing better than uh, Daria Kasakina right now, I could make a case that she's maybe playing better than Caroline Garcia right now. She has not had a better season, or in the case of Garcia, a hotter six-week stretch than Garcia had at one point this year. I think the only player missing, and I know this opens up a separate can of worms, but it's worth bringing this name up, is Simona Halep, who, you know, you look for Halep here this year. She has, what, eight total quarterfinals overall in the season. She's got six semifinals. That's tied for third. She uh, obviously wins the Toronto title, and you know, is one of just two players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. A little stat update for you, DK. Like, I think the only player who you could argue is missing is Simona Halep, who had she been healthy down the season's home stretch is probably in this field. But it's like, it's an obvious reason why she's not playing is she wasn't healthy. And so can you really call her a snub? No. And that's why I would probably say full circle, yeah, it's hard to argue we have the wrong field here. I mean, do you have any snubs in your mind? I have a couple players who I think I could make cases for. I mean, first of all, I mean, that quarterfinal stat, very cute. I think everybody (laughs) gave a little golf clap to the quarterfinal stat. I would imagine there's a bit of a drop off when we talk about semifinals and finals, just because, you know, when you think of players making the quarters, you know, that's minimum one match if they had a buy, maybe two or three, depending on the size of the draw. And I think that's part of where I kind of feel a bit of consternation about this elite eight, whereas, you know, they a lot of players did have some consistent results, but at the same time, what did they have to show for it? I mean, I think Coco Goff certainly had one of the more memorable years making a Grand Slam final, but then the way that she played the final sort of like, you know, makes you feel a little indifferent to the run itself. Um, if we're talking about snubs, I mean, the way well, Calab- can I just quickly add a before we snub, 
Can I quickly add a stat to your point? Because I think you make a really good point delineating the great from the very good. Yeah, I think it's – The only yeah. player who had – oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say it's the very good eight. I don't know if it's yeah. necessarily the elite eight. That's a great way of putting it because – and I mean great, not very good. Because when you look at who had a great season this year, there's only one unequivocal answer, and it's Iga Sviantek. She is better – by every statistic than every player throughout the course of this year. Only player ranked top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Tied for the most quarterfinals, but I mentioned the 12 quarterfinals for Iga. 11 semifinals. 9 finals. 8 titles. She won 89% of her matches this season. But to delineate again, the great from the very good. Only one player had double-digit top 10 victories this season. It was Sviantek at 12. You want to guess how many the next closest Daria Kasakina had this year? Oh, God. I feel like I'm going to suggest a really low number. Maybe I'm being unfair, but four? Very good guess. Price is right. You're still alive. Five. Five was the next closest. That is not great that the next closest is five, and then there's a group of six tied with four. But, like, A, there's a lot of constant shuffling in and out of the top ten, so no one really held on to that spot for that long. But, B, you know, again, top 10 wins is one thing. I I like to say there are currently 32 top 20 players on the WTA Tour. Well, even if you look at the top 20 wins, Iga's got 18. Next up, there's a group of four. They only have nine. Like, only one player had double-digit top 20 wins. So in the group of 32 top 20 players, only one really stood clearly above the field. That is Iga Sviantek. Now, That gets back to your point of the field of very good. That's why I think ultimately this WTA Tour Finals is so fascinating because all season long we talked about the question of, okay, we know it's Iga, but who else is there? And Owens has certainly stepped up to some extent. Do you think Pagula is a tier two player now? That's a debate we can have a little bit later on. But, you know, outside of those two who have kind of been quarterfinals everywhere, it's been a mix. Sometimes Garcia's hot. Sometimes Sabalenka's hot. Obviously, Kasakina's semifinals French Open. Shout out to that run. It does feel like it's the battle to see, okay, who's the biggest challenger? Like, who's going to get the shot at Iga? Who are, who's the player who we say, go, or, you know, Iga's one, you're two going into next season, right? Isn't that ultimately the biggest question is trying to figure out who's two? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly who can compete with Iga yeah. Shvantec, even superficially. I mean, I think we're that's the question. I felt like at least at the end of 2021, and certainly the way that Barty plays and just her sort of physical limitations, it always felt like players had at least a superficial chance to compete with her. I mean, I think Arena Sabalink in particular really relished the opportunity to compete with her, with her power to really smother, you know, Barty from the back of the court. It's not the same with Shvantec because Shvantec is just a superior athlete, a superior competitor. You know, it's just, it's, this is the sort of like the nightmare scenario, I think for the WTA field, they lost, you know, this dominant number one and then got replaced by an even more dominant number one at the <laughs> same time, you know, the, the field needs to give themselves as Johanna Kanta would famously say the opportunities to succeed. I mean, we're looking at just the bar to qualify for this WTA finals. Sabalenka qualifies sixth, realistically off the back of, three good weeks, mm-hmm. you know, making the semifinals in Rome, the semifinals in Cincy and the semifinals of the U S open. You and know, Garcia, Stuttgart. That was the other yeah. good one. Yeah. Stuttgart. That's true. They're making the finals in Stuttgart. I was looking but at the, four uh, weeks. The, the 1000. It's like, yeah, four weeks. 
Yeah, I mean, Pagula making as many quarterfinals as she did. I mean, that's the sort of performance that would qualify you seventh or eighth in 2005. I think she, I'm pretty sure she qualified third or fourth. I mean, it's just sort of a different, a different uh, standard right now, you know, and that's nothing to say to take away from the field and certainly not nothing to take away from Pagula, who probably, other than Sviantec, I would say probably had the most consistent wall-to-wall year, whether she had the better year than some of her rivals is obviously something we could debate, but certainly the most consistent. I mean, I think I asked her in DC sort of flabbergasted, like, what is your secret? Because everyone could be taking a page from the Jesse Pakula book in terms of just showing up week in, week out and posting solid results. Um, But if we're talking about snubs and we're talking about what it takes to make the Elite Eight, it is a little shocking that Palapadosa didn't figure out how to make it in. I mean, starting the year as well as she did, putting together a really solid first quarter, you know, making the second week of the Australian Open, winning the title in Cincy, semifinals and quarterfinals of Indian Wells in Miami, semifinals, I'm pretty sure, in Stuttgart. And it wasn't enough because she just played so badly after um, getting to number two in the WTA rankings. I mean, that's probably the biggest shock for me. I think Obviously, you can make an argument from for Simona, who was certainly hampered by the fact that her best slam run was at Wimbledon, where she earned no points. And that probably, I mean, she finished at 10th. Not that she would have been able to play, but if she'd been able to play, I think she would have been ranked a little bit higher had she earned those slam semifinal points. It's just, it's, it's a strange situation in which we find ourselves where I don't really feel like anybody's snubbed, but it, if we're having like a realistic WTA finals in 2022, maybe it should just be a coronation for Iga Svantec. Yeah. A lot of good meat on that bone I want to pick off of, if I may. Um, A, you bring up the Pagula compared to her rivals debate. We are going to have that. That'll be my next question for you after we finish off on the snubs. But we did get a question from a listener, and I apologize. I don't have all the handles listed, so I'm just going to ask your question. Hopefully you know who you are when you hear it answered. Why isn't Bedosa there? And I think that that was, that was me. To... That was DK Tennis from Long yeah. Island, New York. <laughs> Why? Exactly. Why isn't she there? Uh, you know, and some of the biggest disappointments for not reaching it. And I think this links into the snubs discussion. We don't have to do the Halop testing positive because until we have more information, it's just speculation. And I don't really care what more Toulouse statement versus Darren Cahill's statement was. If you want to hear that sort of coverage, I'm sure there are other podcasts for you. I think she would be on the list. Kudermatova's disappointed she's not there, but she's not disappointed she didn't make it. She had a great season, and she's just disappointed by virtue of if I beat Sakari, I'm ultimately in the event. And that's that disappointment, not an actual big-picture disappointment. I think Bedosa's one, and I want to let you talk about her in a second. Danielle Collins, if healthy, was one of the best eight players this season. And I would put her in for Kasakina in my ideal field. Oh, the hard courts this year, you're making a face. This is why I said oh to the listeners. Australian Open final, obviously played really well in San Diego. Um, she just wasn't healthy this year. That that was the big well, thing. That's why I made the face because it felt like uh, she barely played. It felt like yeah. she was absent for Fewer large than, swaths I think, of the 35 matches. I mean, I think Barty played more than, than Collins did. And for You can make an argument. So Collins would be the only one who I think when healthy on court, she was one of the eight best players this year. Would you agree with that? I mean, she was very close to winning the Australian Open. I mean, you think about that and it's hard to remember at times because she's been so absent. Um, and, you know, the good news for her, is she's getting back to hard courts at the beginning of next year and she's you know, no slouch on clay. I mean, if she is in the headspace that she needs to be to compete week in and week out, and I think that's something that she has struggled with in the past, just feeling 
comfortable, you know, on tour and 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 balancing that sort of work-life balance that we've heard other players talk about in the past. But um, she needs to play more. I mean, that's that's the difference. I mean, the difference between Collins and Bedosa is like Collins could have, you know, like certainly should have, and then Bedosa could have because she was present for all ten months. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I would say, yeah, no, I think that's her. I got nothing else to add. Um, in terms of the other one, Keys obviously had some really good moments this year mixed in with some very bad moments as well. The last one I would throw in, and I already alluded to it, but these two players right now, number one in hold percentage, Caroline Garcia, number two in hold percentage, Ludmilla Samsonova. If I'm just asking you, David Kane, what makes for the more entertaining field? Garcia in the field or Samsonova in the field right now? Who would you pick? Samsonova. I, I mean, agree. I would love to. I mean, I could be meaner about Samsonova because she certainly has no one to blame but herself because she should have beaten Tomljanovic at the U.S. Open, and maybe I take some blame in that because I was one of the two. <laughs> I was one of the two journalists in Ludmilla Samsonova's press conference hyping her up for her big match against Serena Williams on Arthur Ashe Stadium, and that didn't happen. <laughs> she ended up getting Tomljanovic and Armstrong and was up, I think, 5-2 in that first set and had mm-hmm. something like eight or nine set points. Mm-hmm. Tomljanovic wins that match. Great for her. Shout out MTL superstar Isla Tomljanovic. But Samsonova, the way that she, the way that everything came together for her, it's a shame because she's one of the names that I will remember from this year. And as great as Garcia was from Cincy through the US Open, I still have a very bad taste in my mouth from that U.S. Open semifinal against Anjibor in which she just did not show up and played a nervy, bad match that in many ways confirmed everything I already thought about her and sort of erased the goodwill that she had built up from that really, you know, solid run from Cincy to U.S. Open. Just when she needed to be great, as you will need to be great at the WTA finals, it wasn't there. She did make the semifinals last time she was at the finals. So you know, who knows? But she was also carrying a lot more momentum than she was, than she will be this week. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a mixed bag for the French woman who's sweet, fantastic, great to watch, limited. Yeah, no. And we'll get back to her, obviously, a little later in this show as well. Let's go through the disappointments quickly, and then we can get into some of the individuals in this field. I promise listeners, Belinda Bencic, had she had one good slam, you feel like she's in this field, right? Because I think Bencic was really good everywhere else. I think she had the second most wins in a single season this year of any season of her career, trailing only 2019, where she was elite all year long, at least on the hard courts. I think Belinda Bencic is moving well again, and I don't think anyone has ever challenged her tennis. Those historians like... DK and myself know Belinda Bencic was probably the best junior of her generation. There was a little five-year run there where it felt like when Bencic was 16, 17, 18 years old, already cracking the top 50 of the WTA rankings, it was when, not if, she was going to capture a slam title. On the list of disappointments, I think she has to be on there because it was just like 25 years old. There's this massive opening at the top of the game. Yeah, Iga's won, but again... We'll get to the Conteve, who is going to be on this disappointing list, or Muguruza, more broadly, disappointing season from her. You know, again, this felt like the window for Bencic with some of these younger players still a little young, and she just had three tough slams. I feel like I'm still mad at Bencic for how she played that U.S. Open quarterfinal against Emma Raducanu. I mean, I (laughs) I remember that match. I remember Raducanu. You well, know, that was the one where you just felt like the streak was over. Like, this is the opponent. Bencic finally has the weapons to slow Raducanu down, and she just didn't. The, well, it's the problem was is that Raducanu out-hit Bencic, which I was know. 
a little embarrassing given, you know, Raducanu's sort of inability to do that against other players. It just sort of exposed the lack of firepower for Benchish. And that's, that's a technical limitation. That's a physical limitation. And, you know, again, we look back on a year and we expect, you know, these players in the top eight to have a signature result. And now we have obviously what Svantec was able to do, Jabor's Grand Slam finals, Pagula now having won Guadalajara, you know, obviously happened very recently. Um, Coco Goff making a Grand Slam final south of, and obviously what's, you know, I guess Garcia was able to do in Cincy, but um, south of that, it's, it's hard to feel, really look at anyone and be like, but you did this. And it was so amazing. Like I remember, obviously she won Charleston. And then, then I have to confirm if she made any other final. She made the Berlin final and retired to Jabor. Um, certainly helped Jabor over the finish line there, unfortunately, but um, for, for Benchich. But um, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know if I expected Benchich to be in the top eight. And I think that's just you know, one of those players who was really snake bitten by this pandemic era. I mean, she was top four, you know, before the lockdown and really, Olympics aside has not been that, you know, player pushing towards the top of the game. She's 12th in the race right now. And that's sort of how I see her, you know, barring any major changes. Well, I think that's why it's a disappointment. It was like the window to be six through eight was there. Like again, Sakari, all due respect to her Guadalajara final run, Kasaki and Sabalenka, they haven't had definitively better seasons than you. And you're just like, that was the window. I mean, I think this whole argument applies to Conteve as well. The sneaky one I'm disappointed about is Amanda Anisimova. Anisimova played 46 matches this year. David, what do you think her record was? 46 matches. She probably won 28 of them. 33 and 13. That's close. She was good. She (laughs) was really good this year. And I do think it was just a stark reminder of why she's another one of those players in the mix moving forward. But all that said, again, our field, Iga, Owens, Pagula, Goff, Kasakina, Garcia, Sakari, Sabalenka. With that in mind, let's start previewing the field. Let's have some fun debates. Let's get into it. Uh, Obviously, a lot of different ways we can go. Here's my first question for you, and I posited it on Twitter to worse reception than I was hoping for. Nevertheless, I'm going to try again here with you. And part of it is relative to expectations. I think that's how I always weigh it in my mind, as opposed to just in a vacuum, 2022s, here's the resume, straight up, who is better. But I will ask you this, David, going into this, obviously Iga's number one, and we'll get to her in a little bit. But second, Onjabur, third, Jessica Pagula, and then there's a gap. Let me ask you, David Kane, who had the better season, Onjabur or Jessica Pagula? I think, well, first of all, I think when we have these sorts of debates of who had the better season and Spiontek is not included in that debate, you kind of have to feel like, well, relative to everybody else, you know, so-and-so <laughs> had a good season. But I mean, it, the, what it takes to have a good season is different than it was a few years ago, just, just to, to start with that. I think to, you can answer this question two different ways. I think you can look at it in terms of who had the objectively better season and who had the kind of season that makes you confident that they could do this again in 2023 and build on it and do better. So who objectively had the better season? The one who made two two Grand Slam finals. I mean, I think that's, for me, that's pretty obvious. But at the same time for Pagula, the way she has been able to slowly build, maintain this level, display a level of competitiveness, stick-to-itiveness with, you know, solid technical arsenal, 
you know, has a good head on her shoulders, never got disappointed by her early, you know, earlier than she would have hoped exits, you know, certainly ran into the Ike Svantec wall a bunch of times. You know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, Pagula had the more encouraging season, if not the better season. Yeah, that's a fascinating argument to make because I think when you look at both of them, what's so interesting is they are both 28 years old. And yeah. it's just typically, you know, we all went crazy when Karatsev made the Australian Open semifinal. It's like, all right, well, these two at 28 years old just had the two best seasons of their careers, and they're now respectively two and three in the world. And it's just, it's also like, all right, Iga's going to be 28 in seven years. What if that's the best season of her career? How freaking good is that season going to look? Or like, Goff's going to be 28 in 10 years. What if that's the best season of her career? How freaking crazy is that going to look? You're right. That really is the bigger question coming off of both of these players is what feels more replicable moving forward. And I will say this for Jessica Pagula. I I hate the slam argument against her because she can't help it that she was lower ranked. Well, she could have helped it, but she didn't, that she was lower ranked than Jabir. And as such, you look in her Australian Open quarterfinal, French Open quarterfinals, U.S. Open quarterfinals. Who did she play in those three matches? Barty, Sviantek, Sviantek. Obviously, they all go on to win the slam titles. Like, I, I can't hold that against her that she played them earlier than Jabir did at Wimbledon at the U.S. Open. I think, obviously, Jabir got the head-to-head win in the Madrid final, I want to say, over Pagula. And maybe that's symbolic of the fact or emblematic, whichever term you want to use, that Jabir did have the slightly better season than Pagula. And I'll accept slightly better. I won't accept definitively better because you look at the stats again, both of these players, two of just the six players overall on the WTA tour to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. There are two of the five players on the WTA tour to win 50 or more, uh, excuse me, 40 or more matches this season. And for what it's worth, there were six players to win more than 40 last year, five here this season. In a year defined by inconsistent excellence, these two were consistently very good. Like, there's no doubt. I think they were on a tier of their own from start to finish this season. Again, Pagula, eight quarterfinals at the 1,000 level or higher. It's hilarious that the ninth quarterfinal was maybe the best draw of the season in San Diego. And you're like, yeah, but that was the lowest level one. So we're going to hold it against you. I know Jabir won more titles, but like, do I really respect Jabir's run to the title? I mean, here's the thing. I guess she won the title in Berlin, Madrid. Those are solid draws. But like a Charleston final run is going to be the outlier between these two? Like, no, well, I, mean, I, I just I don't see it. I mean, you can't hold Pagula's draws against her at the slams, but you kind of can hold Jabir's draws against her because they were not what you would consider to be elite to make it to either of her Grand Slam final. And I think what you're struggling with is... As you know, everyone's strength is their weakness. Jabora's strength is sort of her magic, the way that she's able sure. to just sort of play the ball and 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 see the court in a way is different than other people. But that kind of form, like it always feels like it's the last time she's ever going to hit the ball like that ever again in both a positive and negative way, because, you know, there is no stability in terms of you know, consistent patterns, you know, is she going to, you know, make a, an awkward stretch and God forbid tear an ACL and then we won't see her for a year. I mean, there's just that sort of, that always feels like on the table for Jabor because she isn't the same, you know, physically that she would say, say if certainly of a Pagula who just is, just seems so strong and just sort of your standard, you know, tennis uh, body for lack of a better word. Sure. Um, 
And I think that, yeah, there is, again, this is just, you know, when, when we look back on this season in 10 years, no one's really going, unless, you know, I don't know, something crazy happens next week. I don't think anyone's really going to remember anyone other than Ika anyway. So that's part of where I struggle with this elite Or eight, maybe the golf, the golf French Open final, if that's like her first slam final, then you remember this well, season for that. But that's my point, is that it's going to take another year or two okay. to kind of establish that then we can look back on these results and say, oh, that was you know, it's either going to be good or bad. It's either going to be Coco's first Grand Slam final or Coco's the young, or so another player is the youngest Slam finalist since Coco or the first American since Coco. And that's sort of going to be whether she'll be a footnote or the textbook is sort of, you know, remains to be seen. But I think that's, I mean, even looking back on this roster and thinking, you know, who is a star amongst this? And I think that's interesting that you brought up Simona Hallett because when I was looking down at the WTA rankings, everyone is either a rising star or someone that you kind of question whether they're an actual star or someone who sort of benefited from this field. And Simona is really the only one who you would consider to be an established star. And now you probably call her a fallen star, (laughs) at least as of right now. So, I mean, that's sort of the, the, it's the struggle. It's the struggle. The struggle is real here on, uh, here on Crack Rackets. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say. Just some final stats on each of them. Again, 28 years old, best seasons of their careers. Obviously, each of them. Well, I guess Jabir right now, currently 46 wins. She has two fewer wins than she did last season, but a decent WTA Tour final. She'll surpass that metric. You look for Pagula, her 42 victories, the most for her in any single season. I mentioned the two-thirds rule a lot to our listeners. It's you know, if you win two-thirds of your matches, it means you're making quarterfinals, right? Because all these draws are round of 32. And if you get into enough quarterfinals, you're just going to be continuing to progress up the rankings from outside the top 250 to inside the top 250, from slam qualifying to top 100 to top 50, et cetera, et cetera. These two continue to win two-thirds of their matches uh throughout the course of an entire season at the highest level events. Now, if you're trying to separate on the margins, Jabur has been a little bit better against everyone. She's won 83% of her matches against opponents ranked outside the top 50. Pagula is at 72. Jabur, 70% win percentage against top 50 opponents. Pagula is at 69%. Pagula, 7-10 against the top 20. Jabur, 8-7. Neither's that been that great against the top 10. Jabur, 1-5. Pagula, 3-9. It's very similar profiles for each of them. They're both, again, hold percentage-wise. Pagula, 73.7. Jabur, 72.5. Break percentage, 40.7 for Jabur, 37.4 for Pagula. It's all relatively... They're both above average at everything. I don't think either has a definitive weapon moving forward, so... I guess my final question is to you, who ends the 2023 season ranked higher? Which seems more replicable moving forward? Those feel like two different questions. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yes is my answer. Take it wherever yeah. you want to Okay. Go. Well, first of all, I'll just say just to put a button on all your stats because I have a number two. Um, looking at the race rankings, I mean, Jabor is at around 4,500. Uh, Pagula is around 4,300. Iga is at 10,000. She's yeah. at over 10,000. I mean, it's just sort of the futility of this sort of debate, like who had the better, you know, who had the better mini cupcake, where, whereas, you know, um, Iga has the whole buffet. But um, you know, obviously, if Pagula or Jabor wins the WTA finals, that would certainly be a really definitive way to say this, this player had a better season. But again, if I'm looking towards 2023, I can't not pick Pagula because I just think that there is, there are, just too many variables around Jabor. Nothing about 
the way that Jabor has conducted her season made me think that she's really done anything. And it's not her fault. This is just reality, you know, to sort of make this consistency more easily replicable. It just seems like something that she had a really good run. She had some great draws at slams. You know, she maintained a level of physical health that kept her, you know, from, you know, missing large swaths of the season. She's confident, you know, she's making history, but, you know, this could all go very pear-shaped for kind of no reason. It's sort of just, you know, the reason that it may go all wrong next year may have already happened. We don't know. It's just sort of that kind of um, butterfly effect that we're talking about when we're dealing with Shibor. I mean, I think Pagula is just your classic tennis pro, you know, who certainly, who, who I could see being in the mix at a past WTA finals, maybe not at number three, but certainly I could see her in a top eight. Jabor feels more like an outlier to me. Yeah, I mean, credit to Jabur, right, who now for the second uh, consecutive season has been in the mix for one of these spots. And, you know, it is going to be fascinating because I do think Pagula's game comes a little bit easier. They're both exceptional from a physicality standpoint. They're just going to muscle you down, I think. I don't think either is an elite mover, but I don't think either of them would say movement is going to lose them a match. And... It will be interesting. I don't know. You're right. Like you put it a good way. It just feels like Pagula's success feels a little bit more replicable, match in, match out than sometimes Jabur, who you feel like is living on a prayer. Um, you know. That said, I think both of these players are really good moving forward. I guess who's the bigger threat to Iga at this event? I would say Pagula, just with momentum. I mean, we've seen the WTA Finals reward momentum, and this is actually one of the rare times that the momentum is coming from a player who's not ranked seven or eight in the race. I mean, I did a story last week on Kuznetsova's sort of run to the uh, literal run to the the finals yeah. in Singapore a couple of years ago. I mean, just sort of to to the eleventh hour, winning Moscow to make it over there, and we've seen whether it was Kuznetsova, Sibulkova, you know, even Kontavite and Bedosa last year, like it's usually seven through eight has that extra oomph to it. I mean, this feels a little different. Maybe Sakari will have that kind of, you know, feeling, although she's coming in ranked fifth. So it's a little bit of a different aura, but I would, I would expect Pagula to have the better week. I would certainly be surprised if that wasn't the case, because I don't think we've really seen a whole lot from Jabor since the US Open final. Nothing that jumps out off the top of my head of going like, wow, that was, you know, something that makes me think she's going to do amazing uh, in Fort Worth. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, we got this question from a listener, and obviously it's one we have to ask here as we try to preview this event. Are either of these players the biggest threat to Ego, or would you point to someone else? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) I mean, I guess I would... It's hard because Pagula has had so not success against Fiontech. No one's had success against Fiontech. I mean, if we're looking at who maybe has the best shot of beating her, I think I would still look at Sabalenka mm-hmm. if she's healthy, just because she has the game the game to do it. And she was very close at the US Open. She was a 4-2 in the third and sort of misread the moment. You know, Fiontech stopped missing and it seemed that Sabalenka didn't realize that and just kept pressing for even more and sort of hit herself off the court in that match. Had she been just a little bit more uh, into her margins, I think she would have figured out a way to finish that match. Um, just on a tactical level, I think Sabalink is the one that you look for. If we're tra- if we're comparing Pagula strictly between Pagula and Jabor, or even between Pagula, Jabor, Goff, and Sakari, I would still even or even Garcia, or even Kasaki. Now, I think Pagula is a strong third, and you would certainly like after the lack of success that Pagula has had over the course of this year against Fiontech, she's been such a bugbear for her. If she could get that one win, she doesn't even have to do it. Tw- I mean, she could beat her and then potentially even lose in the final, depending on the way that this 
you know, round robin shakes out. But if she could get one win against Iga, I think that would be a tremendous mental victory for her. But I think just looking at X's and O's, you, it's always going to be Sabalenka is the one who has the best chance of pulling off that, that you know, raucous win over an informed number one. Well, with that in mind, the question I have for you, and it was on my list, and I think this is one of the most interesting going into the WTA Tour Finals. It's obviously the second consecutive season we see Sabalenka competing in them. The ups and downs have been monumental. And you look at the stats, obviously they're more relevant now than they will be after Fort Worth. Sabalenka, 377 double faults on the season. The next closest is Ekaterina Alexandrova. You want to guess how many she has? How many Alexandrova? So Sabalenka is 377, I would say 290. David Kane. Unfortunately, it's Price is Right rules, and you went over, but 289 overall. Oh, I was close. (laughs) So are those Price is Right contestants, but Bob Barker always let them down softly. Um, I mean, that's ridiculous. The double fault percentage is over 10%. She double faults over 10% of the time. You can't be given free points one out of every 10 points, particularly for her because— Queen, honestly. Yeah, it it honestly is. It's (laughs) remarkable when you then look at everything, and she's still 30-20 and overall on the season. She does reach the semifinals of the 2022 U.S. Open and semifinals for the second consecutive season— the question is, coming off of the year where we saw so many ups and downs, I mean, at the start of the year, bad is an understatement of how shaky the serving was for Arena Sabalenka. And through all of that, as you alluded to, San Diego semifinals and finals in the Netherlands, finals in Stuttgart, a pretty decent, I suppose, uh, run for her in Rome as well to the semifinals. I, there was inconsistency. There's no doubt about it. Yet, even in that inconsistency, you look for Simona Halep. And this is always one of my favorite uh, stats when it comes to Halep. So she lost 20 matches overall this season. 13 of those 20 losses were decided in three sets. It's like even when she loses, she's still going to have a 10-minute hot streak that is so immense that she might steal a set from you. And I think when I look big picture— I think there are three wrenches that could be thrown into the WTA Tour. One would be a healthy and consistent Naomi Osaka, who is a four-time Grand Slam champion, has demonstrated how high her ceiling is, has that serve that is a non-negotiable in every match she plays. I think a healthy Andrescu for not 12 months, but 36 months consecutively, I think that's a wrinkle that could be thrown into the next decade. And then the last one for me is always Sabalenka. It's just like if the pieces all fit for Rina Sabalenka, who, let's remember, was in the Guadalajara finals last year, and I would love to see the list of players under the age of 24 who have made consecutive year-end finals because I'm sure that list isn't that long. Um, She was the top seed last year, too. Yeah, let's not forget. All that said, there are the disclaimers. Arena Sabalenka, you feel better, worse, or the same coming out of this season? And do you agree with my three wrenches argument? Well, I mean, it's with Naomi and Bianca, they feel predicated on sort of, you know, dreams and starlight. I mean, can <laughs> can we get I think Naomi? I rescue one a little less so, but go on. I mean, it's, yeah, what is less, what is more likely that Bianca will be healthy physically for 36 months or that Naomi will even 
want to play a 12 month stretch. I think both of them seem fairly in question at this point, you know, given the fact that Osaka, I don't think has a coach right now is still, you know, a bit concerning. (laughs) And the fact that she's been sort of just casually not participating right now on in, in the women's game. But I think when we go to Sabalenka, it's the, the image that always sticks in my head is sort of like the leaky dam where like, you know, (laughs) One one bit of, you know, one sprig of water comes out, you stick your finger in, and then there's another hole, and there's another hole, and you kind of just always are hugging holes, and there's always something wrong, you know, whether it was the coach, whether it's the the consistency in, you know, three set matches, you know, starting the match fresh enough, now with the the serving, the double faults have become a big issue, and you know, is it is it mental fatigue? You know, the mental fatigue at these Grand Slams, the fact that she you know makes a third Grand Slam semifinal, loses again six four in the third. I mean, it, there always seems to be something that when she fixes it, then something immediately comes up to to sabotage her. But at the same time, when she's great, she's you know, if not the best, the second best player in the world. I mean, she's certainly the one who you would look to be that direct challenger to Iga Swiatek. She has the game and the power and the competitiveness to challenge her. And I think that that kind of power is scary for anyone, but certainly for, you know, an Iga Shriantek who needs a bit of time to set up her shots, just, just on a, a technical level, Sabalenka presents a challenge, you know, when Sabalenka's playing well, obviously when she's not, then it's less so. Um, well, the reason just by the way, I bring up that loss statistic is I mentioned the 13, three set losses in 20, 20- losses here this season. Last year, she lost 18 total matches. 14 of those losses went to three sets. So it's a repeated thing where like for two consecutive years, the leaky dam theory is exceptional. I will be stealing it moving forward. I will give you credit every time I do. You're right. Last year it was, you know, the backhand got a little bit spray or she'd get a little bit uncomfortable. She'd lose the forehand. Why aren't you moving forward more frequently? This year, it was obviously more centered around the second serve and what to do. Should I be going big on it? Should I be taking things back on it? How do I stop the double faulting? And yet through all of that, you're right. It's just the foundations of of the tennis player you see for Arena Sabalenka. You're like, well, if that dam gets fixed, it is going to provide water to the entire town because – She does have that transcendent Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club type tennis where it doesn't matter what her opponents are doing. She, you know, she's, it's interesting this season, she's not a top 25 club member. What do you think's top 25 for her this season? Her hold percentage or her break percentage? Break. It's her break percentage. That's (laughs) top 25 this year for the second consecutive year. And it's just like, that doesn't make sense, right? It's the inverse branded Nakashima where Nakashima is holding like 85% of the time but barely breaking serve. And you're like, that's not what I see with my eyes. For Sabalenka, it's she gets so inconsistent with the double faults that she has to work her way back in these return games. And credit to Sabalenka, who's putting more returns in play this season than any year prior of her career. I think the hot take is to say I'm actually up on Sabalenka coming out of this year where she was just 30 and 20 and was so inconsistent simply because, and this gets to the big picture and back to the three wrenches theory, in a year defined by very good, I still think Sabalenka showed flashes of greatness. And I think Sabalenka flashing that ceiling, it just is that sort of transcendent, undeniable, your tennis is better than the other side of the net's tennis at any moment she starts clicking. And after watching a full season of top 10 Contave, a full season of top 10 Sakari, 
you know, a full season of top 12 Daria Kasatkina. I just don't think they own Jabur and Pagula honestly belong in this conversation as well. I just don't think they have that gear. Like, if I'm making my postseason tiers, Sabalenka's still a tier one talent to me moving forward. Now, because if it all clicks, we've seen her in slam semifinals, like multiple. She's going to make a, a slam final. And if she plays better in that match, she's the one player whose best can be as good as Iga Sviantek's. Only for 30 minutes right now, not for a full hour and a half. But if she can get it to a full hour and a half, I just think it's undeniable That's why I always think she's the biggest threat going into any tournament she plays, particularly one like this where it feels like the expectations are low for her and she can play a little bit more freely. I think indoor hardcourt conditions always going to benefit her. Shout out to the Ostrova Linz crew that we are both a member of. Um, Like... I mean, again, I, I I didn't really ask a question to you there, but I think that's why I come out of it feeling hotter is uh, on Sabalenka than I did before. It's because I still see her ceiling in way I maybe don't for other players anymore. Well, first of all, indoor hard, I hope the court is fast because yeah. having had to bear witness to the Singapore court where you could see the ball make a divot in the court. It's, it's just so it's, frustrating. It's the reason why you had champions like Caroline Wozniacki and Alina Svitolina sure. back-to-back years. I mean, it was a mud court, and by all accounts, Shenzhen was not much better. Whereas Zhuhai, wonderful court, no notes. Sabalenka won it in 2019, great job. I think the reason why I'm probably neutral to positive on Sabalenka, I'll say neutral to positive, is that in general, Sabalenka, and we, I think the easiest, you know, sort of analog to an arena Sabalenka would probably be like a Dinara Safina, just in terms of that big backswing, you know, nerves, a lot of double faults, but where Safina really started to get weighed down by the disappointment, Sabalenka always feels very willing to go to the drawing board, willing to, you know, take on other voices, whether it was Mark Philippus's at the beginning of the year. She worked with another technician before the U.S., you know, during the summer before the U.S. Open and credited him, blanking on his name, unfortunately, but he was the one who, you know, supposedly rebuilt the serve and it was really good at the U.S. Open. Hasn't been so great in the weeks after, but really phenomenal at the Open when she played Karolina Pliskova, probably one of her best matches of the year, just removed the racket from Pliskova's hand. And Pliskova was just coming off a great match against Vika Azarenka. So I was certainly expecting a lot from Kaya in that match. But I think it's that willingness for Sabalenka to keep improving is what makes me hopeful that eventually she will figure it all out and it'll be quite an emotional moment for her. It's certainly everybody who's been on this journey for with her, you know, when she, if, and when she does finally figure it out, it'll be worth it. And I think if she can finally make it into that grand slam final, I think a lot of the pressure will be off of her. I mean, we saw, we saw her play a great grand slam quarterfinal for the first time against Shibor at Wimbledon when she finally got over the hump and made a grand slam quarter. So I think maybe that sort of momentum will propel her over the, the finish line there. But again, yeah, if the court is fast, if she's feeling good, you know, if she's in a group that is conducive, I mean, I think it would certainly help. I, I go back and forth whether I think it would be more beneficial for her to be in the Jabor or the, the Shviantek group. Would she want to have a, a crack at Iga sooner? She did. She That was her only win in Guadalajara last year. It was, it was an ugly win over, over Iga at the WTA finals last year. But if she, you know, gets runs hot, you know, that's that's the kind of person who typically gets rewarded at this this kind of a tournament. So, and she certainly has the weapons to do it more than really anybody else in the field right now. Yeah. Look, for Sabalenka this season, again, 30 and 20 overall, 8 and 15 versus top 50 opponents, 4 and 6 versus the top 20, 2 and 4 versus the top 10. Again, statistically, you double fault over 10% of the time, everything's going to be hurt 
in every other category. But the break percentage above her career average, career uh, second best number, excuse me, 37.2 of her career. The only better number came in the shortened 2020 season. I think everything but the serve got better from a tennis perspective for Sabalenka this season. That said, I understand your concerns. I still think her playing her best, and I don't know how healthy she is, and obviously lost that first-round match three sets to Samsonova in Guadalajara. I still think Sabalenka's best is, you're right, most challenging to the rest of the field. And I think she's either going to go 0-3 or 3-0 in her group. That's how I feel. It's going to be one of those weeks for Sabalenka where it either really clicks or really doesn't. And I'm leaning more towards the side of really click in group play. And I think she's going to be, I'm guessing, I'm going to go non-EGA category. She's going to win the non-EGA group. Uh, and that's how it's going to shake out. Is that your, I mean, that the reason we started this is she was your biggest threat to knock off uh, Sabalenka, uh, to knock off EGA, excuse me. Let's move on to the other tier of category of players. Because obviously, we. I know we haven't talked about EGA. I don't know what's much left. Let's just do this quickly. Do you have much left to Ego? We keep alluding to her as this shadow leaning over everything else. I mean, she's the prohibitive favorite in the field, right? I, I Would you be more surprised if she did or didn't win it? I would be shocked if she didn't win. And I mean, mm-hmm. it, it would be a big blow to the end of the season, quite frankly. I mean, the way that she was able to conduct herself through the season to be in, you know, the best, you know, field of the season and to not come away with the title. That's, that's really what she's made a hallmark of her season because you know, just sort of that dominance over those ranked below her. Um, So I would be very shocked if she doesn't win this title. I think she's just a significantly better tennis player than everybody else right now. That includes players ranked two through two through eight, you know, by a large stretch, Um, you know, she came into the U.S. Open telegraphing that things were not going to go well for her and she wins the title. So she's already set the bar, you know, strangely, you know, and bo- on one way, both really low and really high at the same time. Um, and and like Sabalenka, just is one who's willing to compete, willing to work her way through problems. You know, she has a good team around her. Um, so there's no reason to think that um, that she won't win this title. And, there, and, and to that point, there is not a ton to say about her because we've. I feel like we've learned – all there is to learn about her in many respects, you know, she's, but she's, we had a whole, we saw her at her best at the French. We saw her fight through adversity at the U S open. You know, it's up to Egan to show us, I guess, another side for better or for worse at this point, narratively speaking. Yeah, I guess I disagree where I said it would be a blow to her year end. It would be disappointing, but like short of her going winless well, it, in group. It depends. Play. Yeah. It depends on how I mean, yeah. but I kind of feel like if she doesn't win, it'll be because Okay, but I don't. What, I don't see her getting edged out. I guess if she makes the semifinals and Sabalenka just has one of those days, I don't view that as a disappointing ending to the season. Oh, or or no. just like it's a fast court and Garcia's serve is untouchable. Like if she loses to Kasakina, that would be the only thing that would worry me. It's like you lost to someone whose second serve is a hanging curveball. Like I just don't see how that loss could happen for Ego. I just like there's no world where I envision it happening. Yeah, I think if she makes it out of round robin play success and if she doesn't you know that would be strange to me if she goes one and two against one of you know pagula or golf sakari or garcia or sabalenka or kasakina i feel like she would beat at least one of them so and and 
maybe two. I feel like she should really beat at least two of them, to be quite honest. And if she no, doesn't, so I, I, I yeah. agree. Semifinals is the expectation. Well said. It's like if you make it to the semis, I don't really care what happens after that. I agree. She is the overwhelming favorite. They don't have odds until the groups come out. It'll be interesting to see if she's favored against the field or not. If she's like minus 120 versus the rest of the field, or will they give her plus odds? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't give betting advice that often, but if she is not favored against this field, bet max, <laughs> bet big, go big. <laughs> David Kane said it here first, folks, so you know you have to believe it. All right, with that said, let's move into those other tiers because, again, a couple of players left we haven't discussed. I don't want to say better season because I don't think that's the right framework, but statistically, these two players are diametrically opposite, and that's why I think it's fascinating too compare and contrast them. And from a narrative arc, there's some similarities between these two players who I want to discuss next. Let's look at Daria Kasakina and Caroline Garcia. You look for Daria Kasakina here this season. Obviously, she had reached the top 10 earlier in her career, but new career highs for her, up to number eight, obviously, right now in the live rankings. You look for her 40 and 20 overall this season. That's the two-thirds rule, David. Thus, she finds herself in these quarterfinals. I mentioned she has the second most top 10 wins on the season with five, tied for the second most top 20 wins on the season with nine, you know, made a bunch of different quarterfinals throughout the course of the year, eight of them overall, including the big ones, obviously semifinals, Roland Garros, good runs in Rome, San Jose, Berlin as well. The big number for Daria Kazakina, she is number two in break percentage on the WTA Tour this season. If Iga wasn't having this historic 50% break percentage season, Kazakina's 48.4% would get be getting a lot more run on this show throughout the course of the year. Now, that's half number one. Half number two of the equation is Caroline Garcia, another player who has been ranked as high as, I believe, number four in the world, if memory serves me correct, back in September 2018. You look for Garcia overall on the year. Actually, the numbers look pretty good now, 41 and 19. But, you know, the big thing for Garcia was the stretch she had from the week before Wimbledon, obviously, all the way through the U.S. Open. You look for Garcia during that run. The numbers uh, truly laughable. She goes 31 and 6, wins the Cincinnati title, wins the Warsaw title, ending Iga's clay court dominance. She wins that bad Hamburg title as well. Semifinals of the U.S. Open before, albeit a disappointing loss to own Jabur. By the way, I included Tokyo in that. So it should be 31 and five, not 31 and six. But, you know, how did she get to that number? On the back of her serving. You look for Caroline Garcia. She's holding serve a remarkable uh, number here this season, up to an 80.6% hold percentage. To be clear, you look at the historic 80% club, prime Serena, prime Osaka. That's the list. Those are the people who hold over 80% of the time. At least this season, Garcia has been sniffing around that neighborhood. You know, again, diametrically opposite. One behind the serve, the other behind the physicality, her ability to just put a million balls in play. All this is a framework to ask you, DK. Which season, you know, which game style feels more successful moving forward? Who do you see sustaining this level more likely, a Caroline Garcia or a Daria Kasakina? I don't know. Can we just pretend it's 2005 and can we be comparing Amelie Moresmo to Maria Sharapova? I mean, this just feels, <laughs> this feels sad, to be honest. I mean, even looking at the rankings, looking at the race points, Garcia has 3000 points. Kasakina has 2935. They're both at the WTA finals. 
good for them. I mean, I just think, you know, when you, I was feeling very, if you can imagine, I was feeling even saltier earlier in the season talking about the sort of current state of things of the WTA. And I specifically brought up Kasakina and Veronica Kudermetova. And I just felt that, you know, to what end? What are we What are we here for? And then I, and sure enough, the only way one of them made a Grand Slam final was because they ended up playing one another in a quarterfinal. I mean, it's just, I... It's it's a, we've really been on a journey with Daria for sure. I mean, she was a phenomenal junior. Really went, was one of those girls who burst onto the scene. You know, sixteen, seventeen looked like you know just one of those next big thing kind of players. Unfortunately for her, she's having this resurgence at a time when just a better version of her is currently dominating the tour. I mean, I think sure. in every metric, Sviantec is just a better Kasakina. I mean, that's that's rough to be old news at really the peak of your career. I mean, that's that's brutal. I mean, well, that's actually of- the great way of putting it because as good as Kasakina is at returning serve, it's just like she doesn't have the serve that Iga does to generate the free points. Again, that second serve, it's a hanging curveball. Like it is just, it's going to get attacked, particularly by elite competition. Her hold percentage is under 65% uh, against top 20, top 10 players here this year. It's not great. And that's the issue for Kasakina. It does feel like even at her best, you know, clay court's a little bit different, but it does feel like particularly against elite competition that she just has such a definitive ceiling. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, that was really what I was getting to. It was just very Uh, clear to me. The players like Kasakina and Kudamedova just have a ceiling (laughs) and whether, you know, whether they will be able to break it will require a real Herculean effort. But I think, you know, I'm not that much more, you know, positive on Garcia, who to be clear, did have a great, you know, certainly her best year in years. (laughs) And I think arguably, and I don't think not even arguably, I think just definitively a better year than um, Kasakina when it most mattered. Although as much as I hold both of those slam losses, whether it was even Tabuskova at Wimbledon, a match she should have won, a match, you know, in Shavor, certainly should have been competitive. You know, the, we were potentially looking at a Garcia Sabalenka power tennis final. Well, and- I think there was a, a real like world where for maybe not 24 hours, but for 12 hours, I mean, Iga looked really good against Pagula in the quarterfinals, but it did feel like going into the quarterfinal round that Garcia might have snuck up as the favorite at the U.S. Open. Because she probably- played a, yeah, she played a great match against Coco Goff, and that yes. felt like the big mental victory. It was exactly. like, wow, yep, against yep, someone yep. like Coco, who was the best, I would say, yes. in some ways, maybe even better than Iga, because Coco is dealing with some real limitations technically. And the fact that she's always able to show up and play some phenomenal competitive tennis when it counts, the fact that she was able to beat her, that was sort of like the, the Daria beats Iga moment. It felt like mentally the mental equivalent, the way Car- uh, Caroline was able to beat Coco, but then played so bad against Ongebor that it didn't matter. And I feel like, you know, it are either of these players going to be able to replicate this. I mean, you look at Caroline's weaponry and she's fit and she's playing great doubles as well. I mean, I'm actually, in many ways, I'm, I'm almost more surprised that she didn't qualify in doubles than, than that she did qualify in singles because she won the French Open with Mladenovic and, felt, and played together a decent chunk of the season. It felt like that was certainly within the realm of possibility that she would be one of the players. I, if you asked me to pick a player at the beginning of the, the season to make both, I probably would have picked Garcia maybe over, maybe not over Goff, but certainly over Pagula <laughs> because um, – and then sure enough, Coco and Pagula in the doubles and the singles. Uh, and Kudamedova very narrowly missed both as well. All of which to say, I mean, I think it's rough. I mean, maybe the, you know this week could potentially be very instructive. Maybe Garcia will have a phenomenal week where she'll win and will feel like you know a big mental hurdle was achieved. But then at the same time, Muguruza won last year in sort of you know a miraculous you know a momentous stretch and really had nothing to show for it, you know, in the 12 months that followed. So it's this, this WTA finals hasn't always been 
I guess since Wozniacki won, it really hasn't been the sort of launch pad to next year's success that you would hope it would be, because this is supposed to really tee up in many ways the season to come, and it hasn't been that. But um, yeah. between the two of them, who would I rather watch? Garcia. But does it matter? Like, will it be a match that matters? Probably not. No matter matters who's playing. Matters to me, DK. Matters to me. <laughs> I would say Kasakina over Garcia. I just think the floor is much higher for Kasakina. I think if the serve abandons Garcia, she's just so first strike dependent. She's so much better as a front runner when she gets to swing freely and be aggressive, take the return inside the baseline. Kasakina is just a death by a million paper cuts. She's that gnat that won't go away. She's going to extend rally. She's sneaky better pop than you think. The depth in the corners is outstanding. There is no shame in her game. She'll throw up that moon ball with the best of them. I think it's, I, I love the contrast of Kasakina going up against the Sabalankas and the Garcias and the power-centric tennis players of the world because it just guarantees an element of physicality that I think is a very fun contrast in every match. I think Kasakina ends next year higher. That said, you bring up a great thought, and I promise home stretch of questions here, DK. The significance of a tour finals victory this late in the season, I think more anecdotally than anything else, you're like, oh, they've got momentum now heading into 2023. Oh, they're playing really well to end the year. To David's point, we saw what happened with Garbine Muguruza this season, although there are obviously historical examples leaning in the positive direction. With that said, let me ask you this, and it's a question we got from Twitter as well. Who would benefit most from winning this event? Because I think there's a definitive answer, and it's a player we have not talked much about yet. I like that you're racking his – he's racking his brain to think about who we haven't talked enough well, about. Well, we've yet. only not talked about two players, yeah. neither of whom I really think – I mean – because they're both so limited. I mean, I love Coco. I think she's fantastic. But so I mean, that's the answer, to, obviously, to this question. But yeah, go on. If she were to win, she still can't hit the forehand that good. I mean, it's just it's really I think it's funny when we talk about, you know, WTA finals momentum, because it really only is ever seemingly relevant at the Australian Open. Like I remember when Elena sure. Svitolina made the quarterfinals after she went, oh, well, she made the WTA finals. She's on kind of a winning streak. And then Osaka just embarrassed her. And then obviously <laughs> Muguruza did what she did. Um and the, you know, what Muguruza did, she did 21 into 22. I mean, Barty did at least win. Shenzhen made the semifinals of the Aussie for the first time, you know, going into 19 to 20. We didn't have a finals in 2020. So that's, you know, one of the big mysteries that, you know, see the ATP was able to pull together a finals and the WDA wasn't, but whatever. We won't talk about that. But I think, um, yeah, I honestly, I think if someone were to benefit, it would be Sapolenka because she's someone who would then, you know, sort of definitively prove to herself that she can win a big tournament against the best in the world. And she's going into, you know, a section of the season on hard courts, you know, that obviously benefits her. I think that's the, other than Svantec, I think that's the only one that would, uh, would really meaningfully benefit from it because I think Sakari or Goff would have to, you know, still have to overhaul a good deal of their game to be consistent through seven straight matches. Yeah, you're wrong. Here's why. You look for Coco Goff, 22-2 and two overall this season against opponents ranked outside the top 50. If you don't have a weapon to expose that forehand, if you don't have something you can do at an elite level consistently, you're not beating Coco Goff, who, again, is one of the eight players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage this season. Now, she's 22nd in break percentage, uh, in hold percentage, 25th in, no, no, no. 22nd in break percentage, 25th in hold percentage. So not elite in any category, but if this is the foundation you're right. building on moving forward, it's a really good foundation to have. Obviously, the athleticism, the movement in the outer thirds, the depth she can generate, the fluidity on the backhand side, her willingness and ability when moving forward. She's got all the skills. Yes, the forehand is a concern. 
I think it has gotten better. That said, here are the big numbers. 22-2 and two against players ranked outside the top 50. 16-17 and 17 versus top 50 opponents this season. 5-11 and 11 against the top 20. 3-8 and eight against the top 10. It's niche geek. It's not great. Obviously, that's something to need to build on moving forward. And I think you look for Coco Goff this season, who beat Sabalenka in Toronto, but her three top 10 wins, Sabalenka, Toronto, three sets, Pliskova, Berlin quarterfinals. I don't know if you count that as a top 10 win. Bedosa, Doha, at that point of the calendar, it probably counted as a top 10 victory. You know, for what it's worth, you look at the results here for Goff this season, uh, you know, has actually only played 10 three-set matches. And, you know, four of her losses have been in three sets, but that means 15 of them, obviously, in straight sets. You're right. The game plan is attack the forehand. That said, if she can have a week where the forehand holds up, where on a quicker indoor hard court, the serve looks dominant, like it flashes the potential to be where she's moving forward, using her athleticism, and it's all working— I mean, what's the list I keep asking of teenagers who have competed in the WTA Tour Finals? I'm sure Celis is on it. I'm sure Hingis is on it. Young Serena, young Sharapova probably find their way on that list. Hingis would like to have a conversation, maybe Venus as well. But it's not a long list. And Coco Goff's on it as an 18-year-old. And if she can go to this event and win it and be like, you know what? I am one of the best players in the world, which obviously she is. She knows she is. But you put one of these feathers in the bow because you look for Goff here this season. Again, has had a really good year, but do you consider, you know, in terms of, well, I guess she's only made one final, the Roland Garros final. Other than that, it's been a title this year. If she can go win this event as that final feather in the cap, like, I feel like that's the only player who, outside of Iga, this matters. Like, actually could significantly matter to because it's so early in the career. You're shaking your head in disagreement. Because it's just a fundamentally different kind of tournament. The WTA Finals is different than a Grand Slam. It's just, it, it just is. It's, it's, and it's why we're not Five matches that. in a week? That's a lot of tennis. Yeah, five, you know, five matches in a week. You don't have to win all of them, which is what you sure. have to do to win a slam. And, sure. You know. Two or three of them are usually like real tired, you know, like or one of them is like a dead rubber. I mean, sure. it's just it's not. I mean, that's the problem with golf is that she's going to get seven opponents unless, you know, she gets a walkover at least, but at least around six to seven opponents. And that just dramatically increases the odds that she's going to get someone who's going to unspool the game. And you look at the slam results this year to Wang Chung in Australia, obviously lost to Egan in the final in Paris, but Anisimova and Garcia at Wimbledon and U.S. Open. Someone with, I would have probably picked off to win both of those matches just because she's just such an incredible mind, not showing up at these um, Grand Slam matches, or at least get, not getting, that's not carrying her over the line against an inform opponent like an Anisimova, like a Garcia, in a way that I would expect it to. As, as impressed as I was that Garcia was able to win that match, I was shocked that Goff did not at least find a way to figure out to make it three sets. And that is an indictment on her technique. And that's, you know, until that changes. Even if she were to, you know, I mean, there's a scenario that's the Dominica Sabolkova route, even the Radvanska route, where she could be one and two and win this tournament after round robin play. I mean, that's not necessarily going to make me feel like she's going to win the Australian Open. Maybe if she goes three and oh, kills Svantec, wins the title, then yes, that would be the sort of scenario where you'd be like, oh my God, this she's arrived. But that doesn't feel plausible. I guess where I would disagree is it's like I saw her beat Sabalenka in Toronto and you know, beat Keys at the U.S. Open as well, where it was just wow. kind of like it don't, did. Don't, don't bring up Keys. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were gonna, I knew that was coming. Um, I mean, that, talk about a match that I was like, but it's I also could, like I could have told you the score. But it's also like she's 18, and you know the vulnerability. It's like again, a decade from now, she'll be on Jabur's age. It's just like, don't you feel? 
confident. I think the forehand no. has gotten yeah. better. I have confidence that within a decade, Coco will figure it out. Because- well, which is why if it starts clicking now, it's like that's why this is significant. It's like the sooner it clicks or just like you get some film on footage like this works. This doesn't. Yeah, but it helps. You know- it's the kind of thing where it's like within a decade, I would expect her to, you know, work with a coach that's different than me, you know, <laughs> I, something's got to happen within the decade. But I just think that logistically speaking, or just, you know, the law of averages that within a decade, things will fall into place. But as of right now, that's, you know, listen again, and she would be phenomenal for the sport. She's a great ambassador. She is so smart. And so like very much, I think she has a very grounded sense of where she stacks up to this field where I think, which is an interesting conversation. I think even when I talk about a player like Sakari, who like almost feels maybe the pressure of being overinflated. Like if Sakari spent the year ranked between 20 and 30, would she have had a better shot at winning a grand slam than had she been in the top 10? I kind of think so, because I think when you're ranked number two and maybe you don't feel like you've deserved to be that high, or you feel like you never thought you'd be that high, you you kind of not, you don't stand up to the pressure in that way. But I think Goff is someone who knows her limitations, knows where she stacks up in this field, feels like she has opportunity, but isn't that disappointed when it doesn't work out? Or at least, you know, obviously she's upset, but even when she lost to Garcia, she was very much poised and together. And and again, sort of like Sabalenka in a way that you feel like is she'll figure it out eventually, but not in a month, not in two months, I don't think. Fair. No, I think that's fair. All right. I don't have a soccer specific question. I talked about her a lot over you? the course of the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> No offense. Right. So we can leave it there. Um, if you want to hear more about her run in Guadalajara, what it meant to her to just – it did feel like she needed that just to get to the final, even losing in the final, but just to qualify for the year-end finals, to face some pressure and come through it in a positive manner. Uh, it was a big result to end the year, no doubt. And again, two consecutive years at the year-end finals is nothing to sneeze at. And so if nothing Achoo. else, again, in an era of uncertainty, at least she <laughs> has somewhat come through. All right, last questions for you before I let you go. Fan question slash my question, as it was written on the list. I saw it, though, on there as well. My question was, how many of these players reached the 2023 WTA Finals? And I believe, as you alluded to, we had three from last season. Iga, Sabalenka, and Sakari all reached this year's event. Shout out to the S's. Sviantek, Sakari, Sabalenka. The question we got from Twitter is, how many of these players will stay top 10 next year? That feels like a little bit easier of a category, but we'll go with that one because it is a little easier. How many of these players remain in the top 10? I'll just go through them, DK, and you tell me yes or no. Ready? Well, I mean, I could start by saying that there's a a cynical part of me that wonders if we'll see any of these players again. I mean, it just feels like that kind of (laughs) scenario, but we can go one by one. Iga. Yes. All right. I'm trying to save the hardest ones for last. Uh, they're all hard after. They're all uh, hard. Yeah, I mean, Goff. Top ten? Oh God. Um, no. Okay, I'll go. Yes, there. We disagree on one. Jabur. No, I feel like you always bet against Jabur just because it's just it just seems less and less likely that she'll be able to replicate this. So I'll go no. I'm gonna go no. Oh, I do. I, I mean, give away. She could be. She could be twelve. Then. She could be twelve. She could be fifteen. And that yeah, would be I'm gonna go yes. I don't feel great about it. I'm gonna go yes there. Pagula. Yes. See her. I'm gonna go no. I feel like this was the perfect. This was the year where it all broke right for her from that perspective. Like, there's just no way the quarterfinal success can continue to be replicated that well. If it is, you see, I feel better about that than I feel about. Jabor making two straight slam finals. I think of Vera's Vonnevera, who made two straight grand slam finals, lost them fairly decisively. And just that that crushing disappointment really never 
she never reached that height again. So I would say no. Okay, fair. I'm going to go Jabir because it feels like there are still some low-hanging fruit left on the table, particularly the Australian Open, French Open, no points at either of those events. And it's like if she does decent there, now it's just the positioning's a little bit easier versus Pagula, who it's just like month after month. you got to defend this quarterfinal after this quarterfinal after this quarterfinal. You said if you can do math, that's one of mine. The math, I think, favors Jabir. Sakari? I think this is where we might agree down the home stretch. Oh, Interesting. I- I kind of feel like, I mean, she's been consistent enough to string together a top 10 year. I, I guess I'll say yes. I'm going to go no. I think she's one of the ones who gets usurped by one of the younger players, Garcia. No. I agree. I think that's an easy one. Savalanka? Yes. I agree. I think she even makes a leap. Kasakina? No. I agree. So we both have three yeses. I went Goff, or four yeses. Goff, Jabir, Sviantek, Sabalenka for me. You switched out Jabir with Pagula. That feels about the about the right turnover rate, like if we're being honest, especially because it is a younger crowd, right? Like the oldest player is 29-year-old Caroline Garcia. This is one of the younger fields, it feels like. I mean, maybe it's just the presence of Goff and Sviantek that exaggerate it, but it's a younger feeling field in that we haven't gotten to know these players that consistently at the high-level events. Yeah, they're not stars. <laughs> like that's yeah, just sort yeah. of the, the the. I mean, they're not stars now. They could be in five years if they're they they maintain this form, or even in two years if one of them has a huge result and you feel like this was the beginning. But right so now, we, no. Yes. Yeah, so do we just call it the uh, the year of very good? Is that the title of this episode? The the the, 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 the very good WTA Tour finals. The very good eight instead of the elite eight. <laughs> that's very. That's <laughs> the, funny. The, the, the so-so eight. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do that because that's too mean. But I could be talked into very good. You know what? We'll have this conversation afterwards. All right. Again, home stretch here. What is this thing about Blair and boots? I, it didn't connect with me. Well, Blair is from Texas, and so okay. she's going to be wearing cowboy boots, evidently. And okay. I'll be wearing I'll be wearing my hat to quote uh, Rodeo from Rock of Love. That's where I wear my hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll. Uh, I'm in. Um, ben submitted a question. It was stupid. So we're going to ignore it. Um, I guess we'll end with this. Predictions. Who you got? Finals. Champion. DK. Your predictions. And only one of them can win. <laughs> like there's <laughs> so many chances for all of them. I Ega. Pick Ega. To beat? Yeah. I mean, if. No, no, if no. Honestly, to beat whom? Oh, t- I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> Some, somebody, somebody who, um, somebody that WTA Insider will say it was a great run for them. But whatever, <laughs> a great week for Ega. I mean, uh, whatever. Can't wait to be there. Love you guys. <laughs> Leave it in. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know how to finish that. I'll take Ega as well. I think I already telegraphed the Savalanka pick. You know what? I'll go Sabalenka over Iga in the final. Let's be clever. Sorry, Iga Nation. You know I love you. It's a Sabalenka bet, not a bet against Iga. I just think it's going to be one of those weeks for her. I will say Sabalenka has a very good record when I'm on site. I no, was, no, I was there for the zero and five. I was there for the I was there for the Wuhan Zhuhai double. So we'll, yeah. we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see if that right. that rubs off and forward. It's a good omen. That's what I like to hear. Well, DK, what can we expect from your coverage day in day out? Oh, so much. There's going to be an emphasis on doubles, as, as I've been briefed. So we'll be talking to some fun doubles players. We're going to be banking some fun content for the offseason. I'll hopefully get to speak to Kasakina, Sabalenka, and all the, the great gals of the top eight. I bring up Kasakina specifically because um, I wanted to have a conversation with her about representation. And the fact of the matter is that my earliest memory of LGBTQ representation is, can you, can you guess what I'm thinking? 
It's ironic. Yeah. It's they're from Russia. That's the girl band T-A-T-U tattoo. It's... All the things she said, 20 years, the, the lesbian anthem. It's like when you think about how, you know, I mean, it's kind of a sad thought, but like the way that things have shifted over the last 20 years, when I think of my earliest memory of gay representation, it was Russian gay representation. It wasn't even uh, the States because I don't think I was like clear enough that Will and Grace was a gay show. Um, but yeah, so that's looking forward to talking about that and maybe getting some fun travel recommendations for uh, from Marina Sabalenka, queen of Miami. She's from not. She, she lives in Miami, you know. Can I just let's unpack that for a second? How is it not clear that Will and Grace was totally a gay show? Because when I was watching it, I was like eight or nine years old, and I was not. That did not click. Some, what's not clicking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Because like he was a high-strung guy and a girl. That was like very standard for me. And it's also very. Like, I think that's also what was part of the success of that show was that there were so many of those kinds of you know dynamics happening in sitcoms in the late 90s that it wasn't immediately evident that that was what was going I think, on i think jack to, is to, one to of the youngsters jack is probably one of the five funniest characters in television history right it was on a lot when i was younger so i've seen enough of it to, i just remember being like that guy's funny and i was just like i don't know i don't get these jokes they're a little over my head but he's clearly funny yeah it was i mean it was on every channel in syndication yeah, between like sure. when we were like of that age or just anytime you turn on the tv odds are it was playing somewhere see for me it wasn't a morning unless i fell asleep on the couch and woke up to charmed on tnt like that's the show for me where i think i know more about honestly seasons one th- honestly all of charm season the later seasons gets a little sketchy like the first seasons because they change actresses who's the 90210 person shannon doherty Okay, she's out, and then Rose... Rose McGowan? Yeah, she subs in. Um, And, like, her first season... The first three seasons plus her first season, I must have seen those episodes every freaking morning going... Like, growing up, going to school. So, like, the guy from Nip Tuck, his series run is by the name of Cole in the series. I remember his run... Um, yeah, anyways, that was that was the one for me. Charmed is a real blind spot for me. The one thing that I know from Charmed is there's <laughs> like a blind spot. There's a meme where like there's like the the Spanish dub of Charmed where it's like escucha la pal- escucha la palabras de las brujas and like they always play it over like whatever like spooky reality TV thing okay. is happening. So that's what that's my main Charmed go to. And also I'm I'm very aware of sh- the Shannon Doherty of it all. She's she's fun. If you if you if you grew up watching each true Hollywood story like I did, there was a lot of fun. Uh, callbacks to 90210 and Shannon Doherty and how she was nightmare she, on set. She's like crazy, right? That was the... She was difficult to work with and I think she's dealing with cancer right now so let's be a little oh, sensitive. Okay. okay. I apologize. <laughs> I'm, uh, my memory again. <laughs> Never I spent like I, the last hour and a half being nasty about you know the topic was, going into it, Fort Worth. <laughs> it was minute... It was one twenty three. Honestly, I think watching Charms might have launched me into puberty. I was like, that was when I was like, oh, okay. I, uh, 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 it uh, launched uh, me into witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some scholars have argued, DK. Some scholars have argued. All right. With that said, David Kane, it is always a pleasure. I appreciate your time. Enjoy Fort Worth. We will chat, hopefully, with you more soon. Howdy. I don't know how they say goodbye in Texas. (laughs) I think they just say goodbye. (laughs) Get along, little doggy. (laughs) Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with the great David Kane, who we always appreciate. 
having on our Crack Racket shows. If you aren't, sincerely go read every piece he writes over on Tennis.com. You will be a smarter and better informed tennis fan for it, of course. Hopefully we will have the chance to speak with him throughout the course of the WTA Tour Finals as well. With that said, if you're looking for ATP coverage, Mini Break Podcast is the place for you this week. We've got all the action in Basel, in Vienna, covered. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.